unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. In India, there are growing signs that the country is slowly exiting the second wave of the COVID pandemic as people get back to work, localities lift lockdown restrictions, and markets reopen. But the second wave leaves behind a trail of devastation, loss, and widespread anger, and Indians may not have much time to get used to a return to normalcy, as government officials are already warning of a third wave of the virus. To discuss where things stand in India today, I'm joined by the journalist Niha Masi. Niha is a Delhi-based correspondent for the Washington Post. Before joining the Post in 2019, she reported on politics, conflict, and religious fundamentalism for the Hindustan Times and NDTV. I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Niha, good to see you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Niha, I want to ask you about a very moving and deeply personal essay that you wrote for the Washington Post that was published at the end of May. You wrote about your own family's COVID crisis. And, you know, I'm sure as a journalist, this must have been a difficult decision for you. You're usually reporting on the stories of others. In this case, you're reporting on your own story. You know, tell us a little bit about why you decided to write this piece. Right. Um, Well, it wasn't an easy decision and it did take me some time to get to writing it. I didn't write it in uh, real time as it was happening. Uh, But I think uh, what happened to my family was quite representative of what was happening to so many others in India. And I obviously had the opportunity and space to tell that story. Um, So in a way, it was kind of like writing it on behalf of all those who went through the same experience of uh, devastation, but didn't really have a chance to share it. Um, And I think it was also partly that this, uh, again, my experience and my family's experience pulled in all these different threads that we were anyway reporting on, which kind of all came together in this, in this story, uh, whether it was like, uh, you know, oxygen crisis or like the overwhelmed health system or missing deaths. So, so in that sense, this one story told you, uh, gave you a comprehensive view of what was happening in India instead of like, you know, touching at different angles and points. And uh, for uh, for those uh, of your listeners who haven't read that piece, um, I won't be able to uh, go into much detail, but essentially my whole family uh, contracted COVID at the peak of India's second surge. And we went through uh, a whole uh, set of problems and trying to get them help. Some of them did receive help and some didn't. And uh, so I kind of, you know, wrote about that experience of being in the middle of it, um, as well as reporting it. So, so yeah, so I think if, if um, this was one of those rare situations where my lived reality, and I guess this is true for many journalists in India who went through this, uh, who went through similar things, where our lived realities collapsed seamlessly into what we were reporting on. So if I hadn't had this experience, I would have tried to find someone else to uh, to write about. Uh, but given that I had seen everything firsthand and given how difficult the situation was, I felt that I could only honestly write about, uh, about myself than to try to distill 
uh, what was happening to others. You know, one of the things you talk about in the piece, Sneha, is that you yourself, in the middle of trying to take care of your family and friends, contracted COVID um, and had to quarantine with a friend. Tell us a little bit about what that was like. I mean, I'm sure it must have been a really frightening experience, given what was happening around you. Um, Yes and no. Um, And I say that because I think by the time I had COVID uh, and most of my family had already contracted it, that it it didn't and and they were my uh, mom and dad had a much worse uh, you know uh, infection than i did that it didn't it didn't like like my threshold for bad was really already very high so um, so in that sense um yeah in a in a slightly grim um way it wasn't um it wasn't so scary um i think uh and again, because I was lucky that uh, a friend and I uh, tested positive at the same time, so we could isolate together. Where she actually took care of of uh, the daily um, uh, daily stuff, where and I could focus on my writing and reporting and and uh, taking care of uh, my family and attending to hospital calls. Um, so, so in that sense, I was I was sort of lucky. I think. The unknowns at that time were so many that it was impossible to, you know, to try to uh, to do anything um, uh, in case something went wrong. Uh, there were no hospital beds. Uh, the tests would take like four days to come. Um, medicines were in short supply, though you could get them. Um, doctors were available on call uh, irregularly. So all of those things, of course, were not easy but but given the extent and scale of what was happening outside um uh, my own uh covid experience was pretty mild i would say yeah i want to ask you one more thing about this story um and we'll link to it of course in the show notes and it was a, a deeply sort of harrowing uh piece to read you write about losing your grandfather to COVID and not having proper time to grieve because, you know, there were just too many logistics to worry about. Now, of course, you're focused on helping your family recuperate, get back on their feet. We hear a lot, and there have been numerous stories about the physical toll the crisis has taken on people's families, on their bodies. But how would you characterize the sort of mental or psychological impacts Second Wave has had? You know, I mean, I was talking to a friend the other day and and we were sort of discussing how, you know, so much of the country is probably suffering from some kind of PTSD, right? Given the sorts of things they've had to endure. Absolutely. And um, again, I think maybe it's too soon to even assess that impact because there is still so much to like, you know, uh, do. Like right now, people have, just about like recovered um, uh, or come back from hospitals and and there are hospital bills to pay and you know medical arrangements to make um, that 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 the emotional uh, toll of it uh, hasn't um, hasn't really um, you know registered fully I would say uh, at least for me and I think it would probably be the case for a lot of other people you know people have you know jobs to go to or or work to look for um but i think what what this crisis has done unlike in any other previous crisis that i have seen or reported on is that there was a sense of universalization of grief uh what you were seeing on the news what you were reading on the papers was also happening either to you or to your friends or family and uh everyone 
would know someone who was going through some kind of uh, problem. I mean, there would be a few people who may have remained untouched, uh, luckily. But and even if you were in that category, your social media, your WhatsApp groups were overwhelmed with desperate pleas for help. So it was impossible to remain untouched uh, in any which way. Um, and I think, uh, like last week, for instance, um, someone who I barely knew uh, and had never met or interacted with, um, but followed on Twitter, passed away. And uh, and there was so much, uh, so many people suddenly sharing stories of that person. Again, most people uh, hadn't met, but only interacted on Twitter. Uh, that at the end of the evening, after I saw some of those messages, I was crying too. Um, each loss feels very personal now because you've seen it all play out in front of your eyes. I want to, I guess this is sort of a good segue to, to talking about the current situation on the ground. You had a recent piece in the Post in which you note that, you know, the case numbers across India have improved dramatically but the country is still experiencing anywhere between 1,500 to 2,000 deaths per day. We know that those death numbers are a severe undercount. But you write that local authorities in Delhi, which was hit extremely hard in the second wave, in many ways it, it felt like the epicenter, uh, those authorities are preparing for an inevitable, quote unquote, third wave. What exactly are authorities doing to get ready for what could be um, a third wave of this crisis? Right. Um, so this is a, this is a difference. I would say I have noted uh, uh, in at the end of this second wave that appears to be the end uh, from from the end of the first wave, where um, you know India and authorities went into a self congratulatory mode and uh, and didn't talk about preparing for the second wave, which as we had known at that time. Uh, did come in, uh, uh, you know, were were going to come, and countries like the U.S. and U.K. had uh, had uh, you know had a terrible time managing them. Uh, this time, uh, instead of uh, instead of that um, complacency, what I see is people actually trying to make plans, and some of those include the problems that we did see in, in the second round. So, for instance, Delhi uh, doesn't have an oxygen plant, um, a large oxygen plant, which they plan to set up, but that will take you know more than a year to get ready. So they are trying to set up smaller oxygen plants. Uh, big size, large size hospitals are um, having, uh, you know, are trying to make in-house plants, the oxygen storage capacity is being increased, as well as um, as some experts have suggested that children may be most vulnerable in the third wave. And so there are plans afoot to try and have more ICU beds for children, the kind of masks that would fit for children. So, uh, so there are like various things happening, not just in Delhi, but also in Maharashtra in particular, as well, they were the first ones off, off the ground to, to start preparing for a third wave. Uh, of course, when and how that will come remains unknown, but uh, but that's the difference uh, this time that states are actually trying to do something about it. But, you know, obviously, when the rubber meets the road, the most foolproof form of prevention is vaccination. We know that India is lagging well behind, at least on a per capita basis, when it comes to vaccinating the population. The central government's vaccine policy has come under fire from a number of sources, not least, you know, India's own state governments, right? The prime minister recently gave a nationwide address in which he announced a complete rethink of how the government is going to vaccinate its citizens. 
what, to the best of your knowledge, is the new policy going forward? Okay, so the new policy going forward is actually the old policy. <laughs> um, <laughs> In, in the sense that the central government is now going to be in charge of the bulk procurement of vaccines again, um, instead of the state governments. So from uh, June 21st onwards, 75% uh, of vaccines will be procured by the center and provided free of cost to all adults in the country at government sites. 25% of the supplies are reserved for private hospitals that can charge a fee uh, for uh, for uh, people who vaccinate at private centers. Uh, so that's going to be the new policy. Uh, and uh, it has, it has uh, you know, gone through various uh, twists and turns and, and has been quite muddled uh, so far because in the middle, the government uh, announced that states can now procure their own vaccines and charge people in one age group, but people in another age group would get it for free. So the Supreme Court recently called that uh, arbitrary and irrational, asked the government to you know, overhaul the system. And this came days after um, after that wrap. Um, but it's, 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 it's a bit unfortunate because in, 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 in January, when India began its vaccination drive, it was in a really strong position. It had two vaccine candidates, both of which were being produced locally. It has manufacturing heft. Serum Institute is the world's largest vaccine producer by volume. And um, it also um, it also had managed to you know, escape the worst of the first wave. It had gone off um, relatively you know, uh, smoothly compared to what happened uh, next. And, and yet, despite all of that, the percentage of people who've received vaccines remains very, very low, even if in itself it's a high number. So, um, so it remains to be seen now how going onwards, whether that this will pick up because supply still remains an issue. You know, we've been reading a lot about inequalities in the vaccination drive. You know, you touched upon this in your reporting as well. Uh, you know, one of the things that's come up in recent days is a, a sort of worrying degree of vaccine hesitancy in certain parts of the country, including in places that you might not expect, like the state of Tamil Nadu, which is one of the most well-developed, richest, most industrialized states. Uh, do we know anything about what seems to be fueling this kind of hesitation, right? I mean, we're, we're seeing reports of pretty large quantities of vaccine that are being wasted because there's not enough take up at certain uh, in certain localities. Yeah, this uh, this is a bit of a complex issue I think and given the diversity of uh, of class and and regional divide it's also hard to say what is the reason um you know nationally. Um uh, I think there are several things to it. One is of course lack of awareness. Um, a lot of people, even in urban centers, uh, you know, migrant workers or uh, laborers do not have enough information about, um, you know, not just about what vaccines do, but also like how to avail of them, where to avail of them. Um, that's definitely one. Um, the uh, the government's uh, system of uh, registering for vaccines is also complex. You have to log on to a website and put in your phone number, receive an OTP, register yourself through, uh, through an identity card, and then book a slot. So it's a complicated system, which again, a lot of people may not be able to do. I have myself had to do it for so many, you know, people who work in households, because 
they're just not going to be able to do that. And uh, initially, when the drive had opened to everyone uh, 18, um, above the uh, age of 18, uh, there were just no slots available. So it was actually, you know, trying to like keep playing a game um, every every half an hour, log on and try and try and try. So so all of those are like logistical difficulties. Uh, but there's definitely no doubt that there is also like, you know, just hesitancy and in um in in going and taking the vaccine and part of it is i think related to the fact that a lot of people uh got the vaccine just when wave was speaking so my mother for instance uh uh you know contracted covid days after getting the vaccine and for a lot of people uh that can seem as if it was uh, happening after the vaccine. So in rural areas, people were equating getting a vaccine with getting COVID or falling sick. So that's also part of the reason. You mentioned sort of the situation in rural areas, and I want to ask you to, to, to dig a little deeper on this. You know, from a media perspective, I think it's fair to say we're still hearing far too little about what's happening in rural sections of the country. But uh, you spent some time in a, in a village in rural Uttar Pradesh back in May, and you documented uh, pretty frightening accounts from one village that had been really ravaged by the virus. And you spoke with a farmer who told you, quote, not a day goes by when there are no deaths. If things continue like this, the village will empty out soon, end quote. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you saw during your travels to rural UP? Yeah, absolutely. Um, going uh, from Delhi, which had seen like, you know, 30,000 cases a day, um, I did not realize that the scale of what was happening in villages would also be so vast. Um, essentially, what was happening um, in this village that I went to, a lot of people began to complain of um, flu-like symptoms, fever and cough. And then they would, if in the days to come, they would die. Um, a lot of them developed breathlessness. Um, a lot of them, uh, most of them were never tested. And most of them could not access medical care. Uh, many of them didn't even know what was happening um, to them, uh, and and were never diagnosed with COVID. So, uh, so you could you found like people sick with with these symptoms in you know in many 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 households. And um, the local health center at the village had no doctor, no testing facility, no medication for COVID or any treatment um, uh, facilities. The closest you uh, the closest you had to, you know, go to was a was a um, nearby town to get tested. Where the day I went, uh, tests ran out by the afternoon, which the technician said happened almost every day. To get an RT PCR test, uh, you had to wait for four days because the results, uh, the samples were sent to a close uh, to a major city close by. Um, and our, uh, a rapid antigen test is what. A lot of them were using, which are, you know, not so accurate um, to get treatment. You had to, again, like go miles. Uh, most people didn't have um, the financial wherewithal to afford a private hospital. So essentially, people were dying at home in this village. And um, as we saw on the national scale with super spreader events like the Kumbh Mela and political rallies in West Bengal, we also saw that happening in this um, in in rural UP, where so many people told me that the in April there were local village uh, head elections held, which were responsible for this surge. People came from outside. There were gatherings. There were um, rallies held in villages to elect the head of the village. 
that contributed to the spread. So, you know, you mentioned that sort of people dying at home, not being able to access proper care. You know, one of the issues which has emerged and in fact has been uh, in the news a lot these past couple of days is is the extent of undercounting of COVID-related deaths. You yourself reported a story from the Western state of Gujarat uh, talking about uh, the gap between official statistics and, say, what you would find going to crematoria or hospitals. Just last week, authorities in the state of Bihar revised that state's COVID fatality count by, I think, a whopping like 72%. Uh, the data journalist Rukmini, who's been on the show a few times, has uncovered a dramatic unexplained rise in excess mortality in several states, Andhra Pradesh, Madhya Pradesh, Telangana. To what extent are we seeing, do you think, deliberate undercounting? Or is this more a symptom of, you know, you have weak state capacity, a poor statistical system, an overwhelmed bureaucracy? What do you think are some of the factors going on behind the scenes to lead uh, this, this kind of variance? Right. I think it's uh, it's not any one factor, but a whole host of factors, uh, most of which you, you listed out. Um, India, even before the pandemic, had a poor health uh, death registration system, which meant that a large number of uh, deaths, particularly in rural areas, would go uncounted. Um, so that's uh, you're already starting off from, from that position. Uh, secondly, as I said, um, in in villages, uh, people dying at home without ever being tested um, is 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 a big chunk of people that never make it to the system. However, there is also deliberate undercounting, as as we found, uh, particularly in the state of Gujarat. Um, we spoke to uh, death audit committee members. So Gujarat uh, constituted these death audit committees uh, last year uh, to to ensure that. You know, death reporting was accurate, and instead, what ended up happening was that uh, it became a tool uh, to undercount deaths. So each district has a death audit committee um, at the main government hospital, which is supposed to be the auditor of deaths across the district. Now, all hospitals are supposed to send uh, case files to this committee. Um, not all hospitals do that or send it late. Uh, no one's catching them. Uh, then this committee is supposed to look at the case files to determine what they think are deaths due to COVID and what they think are deaths not due to COVID. Some of the people I spoke to on these death audit committees um, in at least two cities said that there was um, informal pressure from the top to keep the deaths death count low. And, and so what they ended up doing was they ended up excluding deaths of elderly people with comorbidities like kidney uh, diseases, heart diseases, diabetes. So a majority of the deaths ended up getting excluded uh, by the audit committee itself. So, so it's happening at various levels and in various ways. And uh, to actually, um, you know, get a full extent of it is very hard to say. And I think it'll you know, we'll really never really know how many people died because of COVID. So Niha, I want to end by asking you about some of the broader implications of your reporting. You know, in your own essay of your family's sort of trials and tribulations, you single out the heroic work of, you know, so-called frontline functionaries, right? Doctors, nurses, sanitation workers, civil society organizations, right, who are, who are trying to help for those who are sick or in need. And I was sort of struck by the fact that 
you know, we often denigrate the local state and local civil society uh, uh, for, for not living up to a certain expectation. But in, in, in this case, it seems that they actually were quite resilient in, in, in a way that we typically don't give them credit for. You know, is that a fair takeaway in your view? Absolutely. Uh, but I think in India, we actually have now learned to rely on some of these networks, uh, sometimes much more than the government. A large part of India doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't expect the government to deliver, and and so um, so to to not uh, to have the the system missing um, is not a surprise, unfortunately. And and they have mostly relied on civil society networks to get by. So, for instance, last year when we had a huge crisis of migrant workers who were stranded without. Uh, food and aid in cities or trying to trek back hundreds of miles home, uh, it was the civil society organizations that stepped up and provided for them much before the government sprung into action. So, um, so yes, I mean, India's, uh, these informal networks um, and, and also like, you know, the NGO networks, uh, which are not informal, uh, are, are very, very robust here and, and, very often fill in the gaps that the government is unable to provide. In late April, you and your colleague at The Post, Joanna Slater, wrote a piece on the rising tide of sort of popular disenchantment directed at Prime Minister Narendra Modi. This seems to dovetail with whatever limited polling data we have, which suggests that Modi's popularity has dipped somewhat. You know, we're recording this on on June 14th. There's a piece in The New York Times today on this point as well. In recent weeks, the slide, though, seems to have stopped. His ratings have sort of stabilized, at least according to one weekly tracker uh, conducted by the global polling for Morning Consult. So I'm guessing, you know, if you sort of step back, um, what is what is Modi's political standing as the second wave ebbs? How, how do you see it, right? I mean, it seems like there's a rising tide of anger, but already the government, you know, is talking about uh, how they're willing to share lessons learned for what to do right, you know, with other countries. So is this something that's going to have a lasting impact, do you think? I think you would be better placed to answer this question <laughs> than me. <laughs> but, well, it's, it's hard for me to, you know, make a prediction. Uh, However, you know, there are some things we know. Uh, And what is that? One is that there is anger, a lot of anger amongst people uh, who are not just critics of the government. These are people who are supporters and and who have been lifelong supporters or who are very, very, you know, who have stood by uh, by Mr. Modi uh, through many other controversial decisions. Um, So so there is definitely um, anger amongst even his loyal supporters, uh, a lot of them uh, that you know we spoke to did say to us that you know we'll never vote for him or his party again. Uh, you know that's that's not something uh, that is necessarily going to be true. However, as you said, the the slide seems to be stemming. Um, that could be a function of that the wave is waning and things are looking better and. The government is now, you know, um, re, uh, revamping its vaccine program, is trying to uh, provide uh, help through other means. Um, so so for now, given that the general election is still a couple of years away, it's, it's hard to say whether this will translate into votes or not. 
or uh, you know a vote against him or not and i think uh, uh, your your piece in the post uh, earlier was uh, you know reflected that accurately um however it's this time the difference is that uh, the lives of people have been touched in a different way people have lost their friends and family um and so that's not something that is easy to forget even if the anger subsides so i would say that the upcoming state elections particularly in uttar pradesh is going to be a potentially a good barometer you know to check whether uh the anger against mr modi holes and in which form uh, let me maybe end with 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 the follow up on that uh, uttar pradesh is your home state you traveled back there during the covid pandemic to take care of your family um it's a place you've reported from uh, on many occasion without asking you to predict the future i agree it's it's totally unknowable um how things will go you know in the next week in indian politics <laughs> much less next year <laughs> but if you, as you think about uttar pradesh and you know you talk to people there on the ground was there a sense of an opening uh for some kind of alternative government at the state level you know here here's a place where where the bjp won you know a three-fourths majority um and has ruled the state uh, since 2017 do you do you have the sense that there is some churning underway or is it too difficult to discern that um no absolutely there is definitely a churn and and that uh, and that churn can be evinced also by what has been happening uh, within the bjp in in up so while the pandemic was happening multiple members of their own party in up mps and mlas wrote to you know uh, the chief minister adityanath as well as other party functionaries pointing out the problems point uh, you know criticizing the government in a veiled way uh, uh, se- uh, some of the mp and mlas actually died of covid um, some of their families you know suggested that they didn't receive enough care or not good enough care or not in time so it was it it has been it has been def- there there has been churn and that's why we've seen like meetings of top bjp functionaries um you know in lucknow and in and in delhi um so and and again uttar pradesh was also one of the worst affected states this time around uh, unlike last time and a grim uh indication of the extent of the crisis was uh, bodies found floating in the ganga or buried on the shores uh so people know that things have been bad um there is anger um again a lot in indian politics also depends on how the opposition uh bandies together or comes together uttar pradesh has like four major parties um and and so 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 much of that is is also in the political realignment or uh possible alignments which will also determine the course of that election not just bjp's performance but they definitely uh do sense that uh, it's not going to be a slam dunk for them as it could have been um at any other point of time my guest on the show this week is the journalist neha masi she's a delhi based correspondent for the washington post she was previously with the hindustan times and ndtv neha thank you so much for joining us i know you and your family have been through a lot your reporting has been absolutely invaluable uh thanks for sharing some of your thoughts with us today thanks so much milan for having me and for your ever sharp questions um some of which you <laughs> should have answered them <laughs> 
Grant Damasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting producing platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we referenced on this week's episode, visit our website, granthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Jonathan Kay, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.